Amen. It's good to have you with us today at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley. Hope everybody has had a good, good week. Obviously, obviously, Vacation Bible School is happening this week. Uh, were it not so, this would be the weirdest decorated auditorium for a worship service that we've ever seen in our lives. I looked down and saw these, and some of you will get this, some of you wouldn't, but immediately what I heard was dun 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 you know, which is uh, Mario Brothers. Anyway, we have finally made it. We have reached the beginning of the part of Exodus that has wrecked more read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year resolutions than any other passage of Scripture. In January, we, you know, managed to shoulder through all of the begats in Genesis because, you know, it was a new revolution, and we were all fired up for completing it. But in February, when you got to, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which is in our passage today and will show up later in Exodus and then again in Leviticus, the question of why does this matter begins to creep in, and we go back to mindlessly scrolling through social media feeds until the urge to try to read the Bible again in the year hits us in late December. So let's just ask the question right off the bat. It's where we're going to spend our time today. Why does this matter? I'm going to give you two possibly surprising reasons the content of our passage today matters immensely. First, our passage today, believe it or not, provides the framework upon which the ethical norms of the Christian faith hang. And second, a failure to understand the content of our passage in particular today and this kind of Scripture in general does more to wreck the faith of teens and adults under the age of 40 in this room than any other thing that I can think of. And I want you to look me in the eyes. This may be one of the most important messages given to our times that I have ever delivered in 16-plus years at Blue Valley. I'm not just trying to get your attention to listen to a message. I am telling you the absolute truth. Today, what we are reading is vital. All kidding aside, there are teens and young adults who will be on both campuses of Blue Valley today whose faith is going to be saved when they encounter skeptics in school and online by the ground that we cover today. And there are 30 and 40-something adults here today whose own doubts will be held at bay when their kids come home from school challenging the trustworthiness of the Bible. This is very important. And so I want us to all focus in on our time together today. To help that focus, let me just kind of give you a, a general overview of what we'll be covering today. This is the continuation of the scene that began last week. Last week, we covered the Ten Commandments. God comes to the people of Israel and delivers the Ten Commandments to Moses in the hearing of the people, which absolutely terrifies them. And so they say to Moses, look... How about you talk to him for us from now on and come back and tell us what he said because this is scaring us to death. And so Moses hears that and he goes up the mountain to God and the passage that we will cover today is a record of the conversation that God and Moses have together. So what are we looking at today in these verses? In the simplest terms, today's passage is the practical application 
of the Ten Commandments to Jewish life. What we read from verse 22 of Exodus 20 through the end of Exodus 23 are the how-tos of the ten in Jewish religious practice and in daily life. And with that said, that gives us the first opportunity to establish the compass point for understanding our true north, in other words, as we walk through this passage today. Listen to me. The specifics of these instructions do not apply to us anymore. They were written to regulate Jewish religious practice, which doesn't apply to New Testament Christians, and Jewish daily life, which doesn't apply in its specifics to 21st century American suburban life. But the principles, listen to me, the principles they provide are regulative for us. That's why they provide the foundation of the ethical framework that goes hand in hand with following Jesus. And I think I can show you fairly simply why that is so by pointing out this really odd verse that I alluded to just a few moments ago. If you have your copy of God's Word, go to Exodus 23, 19, and let's read that law about goats again that I mentioned when we began our time together today. Exodus 23, 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Everybody's life first, right there. That's the one. Now, if you look around this verse, you'll see that this banned recipe for goat comes at the end of regulations for the celebration of feast in Jewish life. When the Jews would come into the promised land, which is anticipated and celebrated in the very next verses that actually close out Exodus 23, they would enter into a world of pagan rituals and cults, and they would face the temptation to incorporate some of those rituals in their worship of the one true God, essentially hedging their bets and allowing them to say that they were worshiping God, but functionally putting their trust in the same gods as their pagan neighbors. And one of those rituals was sacrificing a young goat by boiling it in its mother's milk, a ritual of Canaanite fertility cults on the belief that since a mother's milk made its offspring strong, boiling a young goat in it would cause the fertility gods to impart strength and fertility to the flock. So they could give lip service to saying, I trust God for the success of my flocks, but in reality, their real trust would be in this pagan practice. So when you read Exodus 23, 19 and lots of other passages in this part of the Bible that we might find strange, like, for instance, prohibitions of mixing crops in a field or mixing fabrics in a clothing. What we are simply hearing God say is this, have no other gods before me. Now, remember, the specifics don't apply to us. I doubt anybody here has in their cookbook, here's how I love to make a young goat, boiling it in its mother's milk. We do not have that going on in our world. We don't have fertility cults to contend with. But these passages do remind us, listen to me, that we should not mix the ideology of the day with our worship of the one true God. So at Blue Valley, 
How do we live this out? One of the most obvious that you've probably noticed is that we don't make worship services on national holidays about the national holiday being celebrated. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. It's not pagan like a fertility cult when practiced in reason. I think it can be pagan when taken to the extremes that we have started to see in our world today, but normal national pride is not. And I'm filled with it. I, I shoot off fireworks, which I can do now that I've moved across the state line uh, on the 4th. Uh, we fly the flag at my house uh, on those days, and I wear red, white, and blue to church as I did last week as we observe Memorial Day. We even appropriately thank God for our freedoms on national holidays in our services during focused prayer times. Those things are fitting, and they have their place. But the service, the service is always about Jesus and not about America. And the reason that we don't sing songs and preach sermons about America or display the flag on stage or pass out flags to everyone on National High Holy Days is because you don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk as a part of your worship of God. You don't mix worship of God with anything else. And that's what happens in churches that wed patriotic fervor with faith, and it happens all the time. So none of the specifics of this section of Scripture apply to us, but I've used this one example to show how the principles do because the principles are born of the Ten Commandments, which apply to everyone. And if you hang on with us through the end of the summer, we'll see how that applies when we do a quick overview of the book of Exodus. So when you read through this entire passage on your own later, we're just not going to have time to cover it all today, what you should discover about God's law and how the principles that flow from it should guide our behavior are going to fall under three broad headings. Here's the first one. God's law demands holiness. I want you to look at Exodus 20, 22. Exodus 20, 22. All of the verses through the end of chapter 20 are about the proper worship of God. And a cursory glance would perhaps make you believe that it's about what kind of altar should be used in the worship of the one true God. But they are really about God's demand for holiness from those who would worship him. And the last three, three verses of the chapter make that abundantly clear. If you would please look at verse 24 of Exodus 20. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness not be not exposed on it. Now, those verses tell us three things. First, that the altar should be made of dirt. Second, if it is to be made of stones, they shouldn't be cut to fit. Third, altars should not be climbed. And all of those go to the holiness with which we should worship God. The altar was to be made of dirt, 
or unhewn stone because the altar and therefore worship belonged to God and God alone. A manufactured altar would call attention to the designer and the builder, and the altar was meant to call attention to God and God alone. The reasons the stone should not be cut was because it could lead to designs and ornamentation that would lead to the altar itself being worshipped as a kind of idol, worshipped as an end rather than used as a means to an end, as a meeting place with God to have our sins atoned for. What made the altar significant was not its design, but it's God. And the reason it was not to be climbed is pretty self-explanatory. In an age where undergarments were non-existent and robes were the uniform of the day, climbing the altar would be tantamount to disrespectfully exposing yourself to God. All three of those things point to holiness as a reminder that the altar belonged to the Lord and that his worshipers were to use it in worship through their attitude and focus on God and God alone and not the things surrounding it. And for us, that's going to mean different things to different people. For some of us, that will mean repenting of man-centered worship. We fashion altars of worship that are often a monument to our style preferences and our biases than they are the Lord. So we don't sing songs we don't like or we wait until the music is almost over and the sermon is about to start before we actually walk into the service. For some of us, that will mean repenting of the cultivated distractions that we bring into worship, repenting of running mental lists of what we need to do the rest of the day or being anxious for worship to end so we can get on with the rest of our real life. Like I said, understanding that God's law demands holiness will mean different things to different people. But if we can prayerfully read admittedly strange verses to our eyes and ears in sections like this of the Bible, God will bring to mind what we need to do from these verses of God's law that will prompt us to come to God in worship with an attitude of holiness and respect. But this next aspect of God's law upon which the battlefield of the modern mind is fought is the most important part of today's message. So if you have snoozed through the last few minutes, now's the time for everyone to focus because it goes to the heart of the importance of this passage to modern American life. God's law demands holiness. God's law demands justice. The playbook for shifting young minds away from God comes to passages like ours today and says, see, the Bible is pro-slavery and pro-polygamy, which means then by extension, it's anti-woman. No one in their right mind is pro-slavery and anti-woman, so how can we trust what the Bible says about the practice of homosexuality and transgender behavior? In other words, our students and young adults are asked over and over again, if the Bible swings and misses on the most basic of human rights issues, how can you for a second trust what it says, for instance, about LGBTQ practice? And those same students come home from middle school or high school or college, and they ask their moms and dads those same questions 
moms and dads who are already unsettled because their workplace and their friends are demanding that they capitulate to the spirit of the age on LGBTQ issues, and they don't really know how to answer. And then their own doubts about the Bible begin to run wild as they can't respond to the questions their children are giving. So what do we do with these problematic passages? Simply this, view them through the lens of the time in which they were written, not through the lens of our own time. Because if you do that, you will see that God was radically addressing the same concerns that we claim to have about human rights. I want you to imagine yourself to be a slave in the 18th century B.C. In the ancient Near East, slaves were essentially human capital. For instance, we know the case of a slave named Shamash, a slave whose record of sale from 1631 B.C., about 150 years after the Exodus was written, has been discovered and written about in a website and journal called Ancient Near East Today, which, because I know that thing exists, helps me win the Who's the Biggest Nerd Here Today contest. The record discovered shows that he had been born a slave and bought and sold numerous times as payment on a debt. He was shuttled between owners and households to pay off owners' debts. If you were Shemesh, you had absolutely no rights. Now, I want you to put yourself in his place. How do these words sound? Exodus 21.2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, which, by the way, proves the naysayers wrong. The slavery practiced in the Americas was biblically punishable by death 4,000 years ago. Exodus 21.26-27, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Again, put yourself in the place of Shemesh, sold multiple times to cover someone else's debt with no rights whatsoever, and how do you hear the words that I've just shared with you? I want you to imagine yourself a woman who... Obviously, is, it's not a hard thing for some of you to do. You can easily imagine yourself a woman. But I, I want you to imagine yourself to be a woman who is but one wife of many to one husband. The reason such a practice existed in the first place was as a means of preserving wealth in a family lineage by guaranteeing an heir. That's something we see in the Genesis account of Abraham's life and also filling out the workforce for the family property. The chances of you as a woman in that kind of setting being genuinely loved were remote. Again, something we see in the record of Genesis recording Jacob and Rachel and Leah's story. And you essentially, as a woman at this time, function only not to be indelicate, but to be honest, function only as breeding stock. You're at your husband's mercy. He could ignore you. He could abuse you. He could disregard you. Put yourself in that 
woman's place. How do these words sound? If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. How would a woman, essentially treated as breeding stock and property, hear the words that I've just read from Scripture? The point that I'm trying to make is that at the time, these instructions that we find so problematic today were revolutionary, revolutionary in providing protection to people with no status, no rights. And what is always overlooked and never admitted is that it was the teachings of Scripture that overturned slavery. What is always overlooked and never admitted is that everywhere Christianity took root, the rights of women were enhanced in a way that no other world religion spread has done. And it's because the core of the biblical ethic that we see displayed here is to seek justice for those who are voiceless and without protections to advocate for people who are overlooked. Listen, biblical ethicists almost universally accept that the entire ethic of the Old Testament is summarized in Micah 6.8, which says, and what does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And it's more than just slaves and women who are the focus on justice in these verses. Fair treatment is demanded for foreign nationals, immigrants. Fairness in the administration of the criminal law and the civil law is demanded by our passage today and on virtually every other page of the Old Testament. So my point is this. Are the specifics of these verses reflections of justice today? No. Of course not. But ours is a different day, and we have the benefit of rights and privileges informed by the teachings of the Bible that have flourished for centuries. The world of Exodus 4,000 years ago didn't have a clue about what we take for granted now. And God met them where they were and began to move them toward a just society. So the principles of justice rooted in today's passage should be at work in our lives as believers today. It is, in fact, passages like ours today that will explain why some folks sometimes don't know how to take me or a church leadership. When I pushed for value them both to be adopted last summer, it was because I believe that Scripture calls for me to stop every single abortion I can and to work towards its complete elimination. When our elders pushed for us to have a conversation when our nation was coming apart at the racial seams in 2020, it was because we believe that Scripture calls us to come alongside and advocate for black brothers and sisters who still struggle with issues of equality today. When I pushed for immigration reform on my own several years ago, it was because Scripture calls me to stand up for the sojourner. And in every one of those cases, people left the church because of what I or elders were saying. And what I'm trying to show you is that what we were saying was not rooted in the ideology today, but in the ancient words of Scripture. All of these were because God's law demands 
justice and conservative Christians need to stop being triggered by that word because the reason the terrible solutions to the justice problems exist today is because the church has been silent or has pretended they don't exist or has been so co-opted by partisanship it has no voice. We must be distinct and we must demand justice for the unborn, for people of color, for immigrants, for women, for children, and for any other group that is being left behind because God himself demands that we do. Now, let's sit with this for a moment. Our passage, though rooted in ancient details, gives some pretty pointed challenges to us moderns, doesn't it? And I'd encourage you to read it sometime this week and think about the principles behind the details and the demands those principles place on you. And if you do that seriously, you're going to have one of two responses. Some of you will find justification in these verses. You'll look at them and conclude, like the young man who came to Jesus with questions, that you've lived by these principles your entire life. But others will look at them and grasp the depth of their implications and conclude there's no way. If I am truly measured by eternity, by living these principles out perfectly, I've got no hope. To both groups, I have just one last thing to say about what the law demands. God's law demands a Savior. Demands a Savior. The passage ends with the demands of the Jewish religion, with talks of, of Sabbaths and festivals and sacrifices. And the reason for those things, the reason they were needed, was because it was assumed in the writing of this, in God speaking these things to Moses, that people were going to fall short in keeping all that was written in the preceding verses. And so sacrifices were to be made, and religious laws were to be observed to atone for sin. But they were repeated over and over and over again because they were insufficient. Let me close by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Don't worry about turning there. Um, you can see it on your screens. Listen as I read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, they have to be repeated over and over because they're ultimately not sufficient. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, okay, I've done the sacrifice. I guess I'm clear. I guess I'm okay. But that's not what happened. It had to be done over and over again. But in these sacrifices, and he's speaking specifically to a certain kind of sacrifice called the Day of Atonement, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the law was never an end. It was only a means. And the means was not to vindicate us before God, but to show us our need for His mercy, which He showed us fully and completely in Jesus Christ. 
So when the law condemns us, and again, none of us can measure up to it, what do we do? We understand its redemptive purpose. Understand that it was given at the outset to show us our need for Christ. I alluded to this last week. Let me share it again, Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. My prayer this morning is a simple one, that those with faith in Jesus have been strengthened in your trust of God's Word. God's Word can withstand the withering gaze of any culture in which it's placed. But for those of us who don't have faith, who find yourself caught on an endless treadmill of trying to do good and to justify yourself before God, my prayer is that you will find rest in the Jesus who gave His life to atone for our inability to keep the full demands of God's law. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.